Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's Wednesday, April the 10th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. We are recording this podcast in advance of today's meeting of EU leaders to consider Theresa May's latest request for an extension to Article 50, which will further delay the UK's departure from the EU, if it ever happens. Experience has taught us that it is dangerous to be too confident about any Brexit predictions, but it does seem most likely the EU will insist on a longer extension, perhaps with an option to leave sooner if Westminster finally approves the withdrawal agreement which Ms May has failed so far to get through Parliament. All of this will turn out whatever way it turns out, but today we wanted to change focus a bit and to look at what impact Brexit is having already on Irish politics and what we should be doing, what we're not doing and what we're doing wrong in the light of all this. To discuss this, I'm joined by Shana Cohen, who's director of the policy think tank Task. Is it fair to describe Task as left-leaning or progressive or how would you describe it, Shana? Well, we like to describe ourselves as independent, but yeah, I would say that we're a bit left-leaning. Okay. We also have our very own Brexit whisperer, Cliff Taylor, who always offers a special special insights into what's really happening under the hood. And I'm also delighted to welcome uh, back David McWilliams, man of many parts, one of those parts being as a columnist with the Irish Times Weekend Edition. Um, let's start with you, Shana. Um, you wrote a piece a few days ago about... Uh, the dangers of a certain, would it be fair to say, a certain kind of smugness here in Ireland at the moment? Certainly I've detected a certain kind of smugness looking across the water at the disaster they're making of things over over there and perhaps taking from that the idea that uh, everything is going swimmingly here. I think it's smugness, but also waiting. There is not a kind of proactive response to Brexit, either to deal with perhaps similar trends here to try to avoid the political fallout from like, not maybe not like Brexit, but something, political fallout. So what would those trends be? And you're talking about the trends that actually led to Brexit. Yes, uh, poverty, deprivation, economic insecurity, even if you don't have the same kinds of economic conditions that you have uh, in the UK, like we were talking about in the North, you still have economic insecurity, precarity, that people don't feel like they have enough money to get by, the cost of living is really high. So the government should think about something to do now rather than wait. I think that you shouldn't use Brexit as an excuse to wait on policy. Is there is there an argument, Cliff, I mean, you've been writing about this, that uh, very, very, very little is happening in Irish politics. I mean, there's kind of kerfuffles around the FAI and various, you know, sideshows of that sort. But there is a sense that everything's frozen and that the government is doing nothing. Sometimes when the when Irish governments do nothing, uh, it strikes me that they're quite happy to do nothing. Or sure. even, I remember during the... Uh, Natural state. Uh, yeah, yeah, during during the IMF years, they seemed yeah. only too happy, you know, and, and successive Irish governments have always been happy to say, not our fault, but Brussels made that decision. Sure, sure. And, and you're right, during the, the, when the Troika were here... We, the government of the day had a great opportunity to say, that's not our idea. These nasty things are all being imposed on us. We I, we are in a strange moment. Um, obviously, the, for, for the for the legitimate reason that we're waiting to see how the Brexit thing pans out. And there's such a huge difference for Ireland between a no-deal Brexit, a crash-out Brexit, and some kind of softer version of Brexit, which would be a lot more manageable. Uh, but it does seem, nonetheless, that a lot, a lot of things are just being put off, put on the long finger, uh, I think had it not been for Brexit, we 
would likely be have had a general election by now or be heading into one very soon. And maybe we will be anyway, depending on what happens at the uh, at the EU Council meeting tonight. But it does seem increasingly now that the uh, that, that that everything is being put off, as would typically happen in the run up to an election. It's happened a bit in this doll anyway, because of the strange uh, construction of the doll from an Irish point of view, uh, and the fact that we've minority government and that Fianna Fáil and the independents have to be kept on board. Shane Ross's tummy has to be tickled. The Fianna Fáil have to be gone on board for any big decisions. But nonetheless. Looking at the list of things that have been delayed just in the last few months, the broadband plan, we still have to find out what's going to happen with that. Uh, the carbon tax was announced and everyone supported it, but we're still not quite sure what's going to happen there. We're told the government's looking for cross-party consensus, whatever that is. Uh, the property tax uh, has been put off yet again um, for the second or third time now. So yeah, talk to me about the property tax, because in fact... This, in a way, goes back to the Troika, doesn't it? Because it does, that was yeah. one of the things which uh, which they pointed out. We were an outlier in most Western countries in that we didn't have a, we didn't have a tax of this sort, and that was sure. one of the things contributed to our narrow tax base, which was all the trouble we got into in the first place. Yeah, that's right. So the property tax was introduced to try and have a stable source of tax. Uh, one of the problems, as you say, during the crash is we had a lot of taxes that were based on transactions, based on things happening, um, such as stamp duty on house sales uh, or VAT on new house sales. So when house sales fell off a cliff, then tax revenue fell off a cliff as well. The idea of a property tax is that it's stable. Uh, it's another source of income apart from income tax, or another source of tax apart from income tax and VAT, uh, generally seen as progressive because people with more expensive houses pay more. Uh, and also, it's a tax on assets rather than on work. It is. Nonetheless, inter- interestingly, the, a lot of the left parties, particularly Sinn Féin, oppose it because they argue that people with can have high assets and low-income people can have high-value high assets. But nonetheless, a decision was put off in 2016 when houses were meant to be revalued because the government at the time was scared that people were going to have to pay more tax because house prices had started to rise. But of course, putting it off... Uh, has made the problem even worse now so that we look at things now in 2019 and house prices have risen by, what, 80%, 90% since the tax was introduced. People would face huge increases in their tax bills. A report was put forward looking at a way to kind of ameliorate this and to ensure that nobody paid a huge amount more. But the problem is that some people still would have paid a little bit more, would have moved into a higher band, pretty much no matter what method was was chosen because some houses have increased more rapidly in price than others. It's just impossible to come up with a perfect system where nobody pays more. So the government, for that reason, decided to boot the thing into the long grass again. The danger, I think, is that the tax kind of starts to lose its credibility. The base, it's meant to be based on house prices. It's now, whatever, uh, seven or eight years out of date. In terms Plus of there's all prices. kinds of weird exceptions if some people don't have and to there's pay weird it. exceptions, yeah. So anyone who's bought a new house, a house, uh, a new house since 2013 doesn't pay the tax. So the tax goes to fund your local authority. So if you've bought a new house since 2013, you're you're getting a free ride, whereas the person up the road is having to pay uh, the full whack. So a lot of anomalies there and, 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 and warnings from civil servants that this thing could face a legal challenge because... It start, you know, it could start to go off the rails, but nonetheless, the government has kind of kicked it down, kicked it down the road again. Now, David uh, Pascal Donoghue, when he was on this podcast a few months ago, was talking about a phrase which I think you're fond of as well, which is the radical centre, which was a way of pushing back against some of the more unpleasant trends in international politics at the moment by by grabbing hold of the levers of power to do the best thing in the public interest uh, and ethical centrist politics. Uh, this decision seems to be the exact opposite of that. Well, I mean, I think that. A tax on property is 
the most logical tax you can have. I mean, what, what is amazing in Ireland is that we consistently genuflect to land interests at every level and at every stage. And really successful societies should be societies where wages are rising in comparison to property prices because basically wages are what people get, most people get from their income. And if you have a sophisticated society and a sophisticated economy, workers should be garnering more of the income vis-a-vis other assets. It strikes me as amazing that we're still discussing property and the left, for example, which is extraordinary, are the only left-wing, I'd say, in the whole world who are against a property tax. Because, as you said, A, property taxes are taxes on assets. B, they're highly, highly progressive. Highly progressive. And C, you can construct a tax that actually eliminates the burden for people with low incomes. But when I hear the left saying, oh, we don't want property taxes, well, then you say, well, okay, what do you want? Higher income taxes? Um, it seems to me very, very strange that the left in Ireland are against property tax because I would have thought that that's the basis where you start. So, for example, TASC did a, re- a survey, very interesting, a couple of years ago on wealth in Ireland. And it concluded that uh, in the very, very top uh, of the wealth cohort, i.e. the people who own most, the top 5%, 87% of their wealth is land and property. So if you want to actually redistribute wealth, you have to start by taxing land and property. And that would seem to me to be the starting point of all left-wing politics. Why do you think it's not happening? I I have no idea. I have no idea. I'm I'm, I'm not sure. Like, I know, for example, I I know Cliff was just saying Sinn Féin are against it. I was listening to Richard Boyd Barrett. He was against it. Um, I don't know. Are the Labour Party against it as well? I think they're I think they're probably supporters of it I, I, because they're I more establishment left. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. there are there are lots of arguments, Shana, about exactly how how a tax of this sort could, sort could be improved and made fairer, and uh, and as Cliff and David said, you can make allowances for the fact that people may have you know if they have very low incomes, um, and also there's an argument that a site tax would be better than a property tax for environmental reasons and 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 all those kinds of things. But I mean, you've you've been here now for the last couple of years and you came from the UK and you're originally from the States. Is it true that we seem to have a particular obsession with uh, land and property owning? Do you think? I think it is. I would say that. I don't know if it's a particular obsession. I think maybe it's more obsessed than other countries. I think mm. it's a big deal in the UK to, to get on the property ladder and that's been a problem politically is that younger people can't do it. But it's the same thing here. It's just more striking here that younger generations can't get on the property ladder. I think going back to to perhaps what I what I argued in the piece that I wrote for the Irish Times, it's not just the property tax. I, I would agree with the property tax. I, I agree. It's progressive, and I don't understand the lack of political support for it. But at the same time, you also have a crazy rental market. So you can't just look at housing as home ownership. You also have to look at the rental market. So there needs sure. to be a vision, and that's what I'm afraid Brexit has done, is it's allowed policymakers to put off having a vision that is holistic, that connects different let's say in housing, it connects home ownership and the rental market and younger people still sleeping on their parents' couches because they can't afford either rent or to buy a house. Mm. And so you need, so the government needs to put forward a strategy that incorporates different forms of housing, not just, not just the tax. 
tax and home ownership, but also how to make renting affordable. Because we, we, we had a big news feature by Jack Horgan Jones in, in Saturday's newspaper. And it, it one of the things it pointed out, which I think everybody knows, but I hadn't quite seen it articulated so, so well previously, was what an important role property and the acquisition of property plays in fulfilling certain social functions that are played, that, that are carried out in other in other countries in a different way. So people here very much think of their property, their home as their pension, um, or that it provides them with a buffer against the low pension which they can anticipate in comparison with, with, with other countries. And so I suppose changing out of that, David, I mean, you're absolutely right to say function. that... That's a function. We tend to say, oh, we've got some intrinsic love of property. It's not that. It's a function of... 70 years of economic policy that has rewarded landowners over workers. And uh, it's an entirely logical position to take to regard your home as a pension if that's the way policy has engineered it. So I think that it's not that we are more obsessed with land than anybody else. It's just that our policy has been much more geared towards rewarding land. And the amazing thing about land is land is the least productive of all economic resources. And people have to get their head around that, that land in itself has no value, actually, unless it's farmed. Okay, so it's only of value if you actually manipulate the market, if you change the market. And if you look at, again, I come back to other societies, you know, lots of people talk about a country like Singapore, for example, in terms of a trading state. Well, what people forget is that Singapore, in Singapore, 85% of the land is owned by the state. So it takes away speculation. So it says basically, we're going to get rich by trading and doing deals and commerce, but we're not going to get rich by enriching a drone class of rentiers who extract economic value from workers. And so again, what I come back to is, we would be the same as Danish people and Dutch people if we had similar policies to them. But we don't. We have these policies that always enrich land ownership. And maybe the worst thing is that our banking system still is obsessed by using land as collateral, which means the following. It means that you can become wealthy by hoarding land, and then you can turn that wealth into liquidity by lending, by borrowing against the land, so that land suddenly becomes both a source of wealth and a source of liquidity, which taken together means it's totally logical for people to look at land as, as an asset that is particularly valuable. Mm. But it's only particularly valuable because it's been manufactured that way. And again, I come back to Ireland still enjoys the position of being the least populated, densely populated country in Western Europe. And we have amongst the highest land values. That makes no sense other than the conclusion that this is entirely manipulated. I mean, I take that point, Cliff, and there's, I, I'm glad to hear David knock down this thing of, oh, it's something in our souls, mm. it's something to do with our, our peasant roots that we've got to hold on to that, that little that. field yeah. with, yeah. The, with yeah. The, yeah. The, the, the stones all around it and all that. that, that I mean, that is kind of bullshit, fr- um, frankly. But if there is if there has been a long-standing ideological principle, which I think we've seen in all kinds of ways, I, mean, I think one of the things Jack pointed out in his article was that unlike the UK, 
um, 30 or 40 years before Margaret Thatcher in Ireland, we were selling off council houses and social houses. So there was always a commitment to this to, to this home ownership, whether it whether it derives from a certain conservative vision of the way that society should be constructed or what values are, it's always been there, and it's very very deep seated, even if it's not about peasant roots. You know, it is, and uh, I mean, as David said, as you see from land purchasing and land speculation, but also you see, as you see from just younger people who whose goal in life is 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 to buy a house, uh, because they've seen that's what their parents did. And they've seen that's how their parents accumulated what in many cases whatever whatever wealth they have it, mm. residing in their house policy has pushed them in that direction as you say we sold off uh, our council houses and we also I think haven't really got our head around the idea of a, of, of a rental sector uh, and a rental sector that people would stay in maybe for all their for all their working lives, is that, if that's what they if that's what they so Even choose. Even though the rental sector is now much bigger than it was a generation it is, ago, it is. But we still, I think, we see it, and policy still sees it as kind of a bridge towards home ownership, rather than kind of a, a final destination where people where people will live. And if you look at the government's kind of new strategy for Ireland twenty forty or whatever it is, there's a lot of talk in that about creating. Uh, urban spaces where people would would rent in the long term and creating all kinds of uh, you know local amenities which which I suppose would compensate for living in a smaller in a smaller area as as tends to happen in continental Europe. But my goodness, we're a long way in terms of putting that into action, particularly if your rent is amounted to fifty or sixty percent of your income. Absolutely, I mean, general guidance is that your rent shouldn't be more than what about a third of your income, yeah, yeah. Uh, and as you say, forty fifty percent is is all too common here. Uh, and uh, leaves you very little money to live on. I mean, it, again, in, looking back in, in the old days, people would buy a home and would be strapped for a few years. And then as their income went up and as the house price went up, the whole thing would start to make sense for them. But the trouble now with the rental sector is that it, you know, it may never make sense for people because uh, if you look at the average wages that people are earning and even kind of higher wages, you know, 50, 60, 70, Renting a house for a single person in, in, in central Dublin, anywhere near, near central Dublin, is probably impossible now. Um, as a couple, dual income couple, maybe, but then you're possibly into the whole childcare issue as well in terms of the cost of that. So making the sums add up for people is, is very difficult. And it's kind of a conundrum because we have this very rapid growth in the economy, uh, which has led to now leading to higher wages and, and rising living standards. But still, a lot of people are caught in this bind where they still feel they're they're running hard to stand still and can't see any way out of it. Jane, how much of this do you think is driven by a coherent ideology? I don't know if it's ideological. I, th- I think there's a bit of that. I just think that there's a distrust of, well, to me as an outsider, there seems to be a distrust of public services because it's not just um, housing. Again, it's housing plus, as Cliff was mentioning, housing plus childcare plus transport. So let's say you have to live outside of Dublin in order to work inside Dublin because you can't afford housing. Do you have adequate public transport in order to get to your job? The answer may is probably no. Or mm. you're, you know, like people, Scaries has been gentrified because there's a train line, takes you an hour to get to work. But then you've gentrified that area and housing prices are going up. 
And if you, in our research, we have a project now on economic elites, and even the younger families that have moved to Scaries feel like it's just a, it's rigged because they're buying houses for extraordinary amount of money, but they don't feel like that value is going to is sustainable. So they're just waiting for the next crash and to see their negative equity in their investment. And that's it's it, it's that kind of insecurity that's a result of not putting the pieces together. And I think that's a distrust, goes back to a distrust of public services. If you had a better public health system, if you had better public transport, if you had better access to quality childcare, then you overall would have a better quality of life and the cost of living would go down. I wonder where that distrust comes from, though. Is it on, is it on the basis of people's bad experiences with the quality of the public services that they've received in Ireland in the past, or is it something else? Again, as an outsider, I would say there's never been an experience of, of generating the distrust. So it's not bad quality. It's just sort of there's this generated, this is years of experience. As you could say, there's the assumption that land is going to be your ticket to security through old age. It's that kind of myth, and it's been perpetuated through policy. I don't know if it's necessarily a bad experience of having the opposite of living in rental property for all of your life. Because just don't have the example. Now, David, you argued on Saturday that this stuff is going to have or could potentially have a really serious effect on our ability to thrive, I suppose, in a post-Brexit world. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always taken maybe not the um, central view about Brexit. I think that there's a significant opportunity in Brexit. England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. It's not only England. It's just like you've got to understand, like, how does the world work? Uh, the world works capital and knowledge and talent are swirling around looking for a home where to actually bed down and begin the process of fusing together to make an economy grow. So if you accept that that's the way the world is at the moment, Brexit is an act of aggression against that world. Because what Brexit is saying, it's saying that issues of identity and culture and all these things are much more important than issues of commercial opportunity. That's at one of its core, which is why, you know, Boris Johnson ended up saying fuck business last year. So here you have the potential head of the Conservative Party next time out. It's the Conservative and Unionist and Business Party. It has always been. And he's basically saying fuck business. So what he's saying is culture is more important. So once, and then you have the, the possibility or the probability of if it's not Johnson, it's Jeremy Corbyn. And Jeremy Corbyn's attitude to capital is very much that he's going to tax it, which is either you could say it's right, you could say it's wrong, but that's what he's, I suggest he's going to do, or he suggests he's going to do. So into that mix, Ireland, which in, if we see Ireland as a cog in a global economy, there is a real opportunity to take capital, knowledge and talent that would otherwise be going to the UK, will not be going there. But you can only do that if we get some of these public service ideas right, particularly housing, because eventually what makes Ireland unattractive is the cost of housing. What makes Ireland unattractive is traffic and congestion and the fact that you have to live miles outside your, the city. So what I see, it, and maybe this is, comes back to this idea of your radical centre, that... On the one hand, if you take the opportunities that the commercial world globe affords, which you could argue maybe are right-wing impulses, if you want to put it that way, but you fuse them together with the public service, which are left-wing impulses, that's why the centre has the answer, if you can get it together. So it strikes me that if we, 
allow land to continue this on how would you describe it? It's if you allow land to take most of the returns in the economy, then you won't get the good stuff. You won't get the talented people. You won't get the knowledge, and you won't get the capital. So actually, the two things—the left and the right—lead to, I would say, a pretty much a compromise in the middle. I suppose I just wonder, Cliff. I mean, one of the things that's been going on over the last few months, I've had lots of conversations with people who say something along the lines of, I never thought our political system was very good and the proportional representation and the clientelism and all that kind of compromises and the nod and the wink stuff. But now I look across the water at Westminster and here's a completely broken binary black and white system where they just are complete with their unwritten constitution and all this all this nonsense and actually our system is much better. But our system still has the problems that were identified previously and there is a problem with setting out clear objectives and, and, and achieving them in our system, isn't there? There has been for forever. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to preface it by the point you made uh, looking across the parliamentary procedures in in the UK and even people saying that even the building and uh, that, that it's conducted in and the whole ceremony around it is actually now a, a block to progress because it, it's, you know, it's something from, a, from another time and mm. another century. You could have that argument either way. But Irish politics has has obviously developed a lot over the last few years and we all grew up in a time when uh, governments were elected, majority governments were elected and typically, you know, it was a Fianna Fáil government or a Fine Gael government and, and then it came to the smaller party was needed to add in uh, for, for one or the other to take power and, that, and now we're in another era where I suppose like a lot of uh, countries in Europe we're, we're looking at minority governments, we're looking at coalition making we haven't quite got to the, maybe we haven't just quite got to the pitch of the ball in terms of actually making things happen and addressing those kind of long-term problems in, in health and housing. And I well, think you talked about the, earlier about the government waiting to find some consensus to emerge on carbon tax. I wouldn't yeah. be holding my breath on that. No, I wouldn't either. <laughs> and it comes back to, I think part of it also comes back to what uh, Shana was saying in terms of trust in the system. So you go out and do a survey. You say to people, are, are you willing to pay more tax if it improves the housing situation. Are you willing to pay more tax to have a better health service? And they, and they say yes. But when it comes to it, they're not convinced that paying more tax or spending more money on health or housing are actually going to solve the problems. So we've spent a lot of more, more money on health in the last few years. And, and OK, it has come from a position where there had been cutbacks or a standstill during the crisis. But, but still, we're not seeing the kind of improvements that you would think you would see. So you know, people are still bringing elderly relatives who are lying on in A and E for you know days before they get a bed. There are still long waiting lists, so that kind of trust is missing. That Irish politics can actually deliver the reform that's needed, because particularly now, looking for support across the board, we're so caught up with the different interest groups. Who you know, one of them are lobbying Fianna Fáil, someone else is lobbying Fine Gael. The independents are trying to have their pitch and look after pensioners. And, and in the middle of it, nothing seems to be happening. Mm. But I would say, look, this headline today on the Children's Hospital and the PwC goes very close to the root of why many people don't trust this notion of more tax, better outcome, because there's been a pretty cavalier attitude to people's money and tax money during this period. So much so that even... This morning, PwC publishes a report. It says, yeah, well, there's a, an overspend of hundreds of millions. And then lots of people listen to that and say, okay, well, that's how the public 
service or sector um, treats tax money. And therefore they, as Cliff said, therefore they say, well, we know the problems could be solved by more money, but we're not too sure whether we're going to get any value there. So I think my own sense is that things like the children's hospital are really damaging to public trust in the public sector, much more damaging, I think, than we initially appreciate because over the the whole saga, and I, I remember writing about this in January and I was in South Africa and Zuma, the, the South African news, was full of stories of how Zuma, the former president, uh, continued to extract huge amounts of money out of public contracts. And it was really not unlike this. Except at the end of the day, this is, you don't see a guy at the end taking... Well, no, there is, there's no it, suggestion that anybody no, has no, but, but behaved it, improperly but, 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 but in that for, sense. Well, it doesn't really matter because if the money is wasted, people don't care who gets it. It's like somebody got it. Somebody pitched in a very low bid, which was clearly intended to get the contract and not actually a realistic price. And then nobody protected the money of the taxpayer. So whether some fellow puts it in his back pocket and heads off to Switzerland with the money or whether it disappears somewhere else. If you're the taxpayer, you're thinking it's the same stuff. What about that, Jenna? Because there is, I mean, in terms of the arguments which Task is putting forward, I mean, that is clearly a problem what David has identified. There is a lack of trust in the ability of the state to deliver, whether they be large capital projects or ongoing services uh, in a value for money kind of a way. Yes, I would agree. I, I think I'm risking being repetitive, but I think there's a, there, certainly there's a trust, a distrust in the political system to deliver on policy. I, I think that that's, and, and the fact that we're seeing this kind of status quo attitude in response to Brexit or holding off and making big decisions is probably reinforcing that. But it goes back to the vision. So rather than invest in a children's hospital, Ireland is an outlier in the EU. We had a report come out, and Ireland's one, of, if not the only European country without universal access to primary care. So the response of the government is to do these incremental measures. Okay, well, we'll eventually, in a couple of years, we'll allow all under 12s to have free access to universal primary care. But that's not enough, and that's not responding to Ireland's position within the EU. The political response to Brexit should be that Ireland now will have to move closer to other social democrat country, democratic countries in the EU because that's our natural kind of affinity. If we're going to go to Northern Europe and see that as the block of nations to which Ireland is the closest, then our policies are going to have to replicate the policies of those countries. We can't sort of hide behind the UK anymore and the UK sort of neoliberalism because it won't exist. It won't be there. So the, the policy response should be, okay, we don't have universal access to primary care. Other EU countries have it and with positive benefits. So that should be the policy initiative that's at the forefront of government thinking. Can, can I ask you something about, which I may have misread in your piece, so, so correct me if I'm wrong, but you seem to me to be arguing that some of the impulses, for example, nativism, um, anti-immigrant anti sentiment, a general disenchantment with, 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 with democratic policy, which, which impelled part of the Brexit vote, um, that we risk seeing those things in Ireland because of similar frustrations bubbling up below, below the surface. But one thing I, uh, I wonder about that, if I'm right about that correlation, is um, I look at social democratic countries far more advanced, the kind of ones that you would cite as good examples. This, And I look at Sweden and the rise of the Sweden Democrats. I look at the rise of the far right in recent Dutch elections. I look at both the Gilets Jaunes and, the, and uh, Marine Le Pen in France, all of which have, by comparison to Ireland, much, much better social services and health and childcare and so on. So 
is there a correlation or causation kind of question here? Does one thing necessarily lead to the other? Because one thing we don't have is an overt manifestation of those kind of nativist sentiments in Ireland so far. No, that's completely true. And you're, you're right about that. One thing that's sort of underreported about Sweden is the fact that there were eight years of a conservative, fairly conservative government and what they they engage in a significant effort at privatizing public services. So you see, you saw the rapid growth of a private educational system and private health services. And I think that has corresponded with an anti-immigrant sentiment and the rise of the Swedish Democrats. It's that lack of, it's, a, it's promoting, the government promoting a distrust in public services. And that I think is what happened in the UK, that the public sector was diminished. And so you didn't have that kind of common good. And that's what I talked about in the piece. Mm. I, I couldn't predict, I, I wouldn't think that what's happening in bigger European countries is necessarily going to happen in Ireland, though you do see the creation of a, a new party out of Sinn Féin that's explicitly anti-immigrant. And would that have happened five Spider years ago? Tobin's into yeah. party. I mean, would that have happened five years ago? Would that have been something that would he have felt the confidence to take that position? I think, Cliff, and um, with all due respect to your economic expertise, I'm interested in David's point, which is the the thing that drives a lot of a lot of these things sometimes is not to do with economics or people making decisions which they think may may improve their economic situation. It's to do with something more emotional. Uh, more to do with a sense of a loss of identity. Um, and that's what we see, both in the Brexit example and, and some of the other countries I mentioned there. True. Uh, never clearer, I guess, than in the Brexit debate where people voted against their economic interest uh, and, and seem, OK, and you might argue that at the time they did that, they, they didn't realise uh, the cost um, but well, you, could argue that in many, you could argue that but, but, Ireland left the UK in a decision which was it against its economic sure, interest sure. at the time. That's true, but, 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 but what I was going to say was they certainly realise now the economic cost, but still the polls are, are close enough in the, in the UK. Um, still 40% plus you know, want to leave. It has swung a little bit the other way, but not, but not to, uh, the, to the kind of level that you might expect. So yeah, there is that kind of, uh, there is that kind of thing bubbling under the surface. Uh, I, I I do think it's a little different here. Um, I do think, for example, when you look at the kind of political or the movements that are uh, coming forward to try and argue that Ireland should follow the UK out of the EU, uh, terribly little support for that point of view in Ireland. Uh, all the opinion polls suggesting that you know people would be really strongly opposed to that, and that we now see our identity uh, as well as our economic future as as as, as European. Uh, you could argue, I suppose, historically that that was part of a move away from the UK. And mm. That was our, you know, our ticket out. But that's it. It is what it is. Well, what's going to be really interesting now is, as, um, as Shane is saying, you know, we can't hide behind the Brits anymore if this process continues, as it looks like it's going to. So we find ourselves in a country which, you know, highly globalized, English-speaking, still a common law country in many ways, and the only one of those. Inside the in, inside the newly constructed EU, and that's going to change the way in which we think about these things and how we relate to issues, like how we how we correlate with the way they run their countries on the continent. absolutely. And uh, you know, nowhere clearer. Uh, I think the issues that in the, the area of corporate tax, where we've hidden uh, hidden behind or relied upon whatever way you want to put it, the support of the UK uh, to see off any attempts to uh, attack our tax regime or to bring in a cor- common corporate tax base across Europe. Uh, with the UK gone, 
the signs are and, and the controversy over that issue, the signs are that that dial is switching and mm. uh, that we're, we could find ourselves isolated on a lot of those issues. And who are, do we have new allies? Is this talk of a hand, new Hanseatic League and so stuff like that? So the Swedes and the Danes and the Finns have su- supported and our case. And the, the, Dutch, and the Dutch. The Dutch are a seriously uh, yeah. able manipulator of their own tax system and yeah. have been yeah. for hundreds of years. So I, I wouldn't say that we're isolated uh, completely. Uh, with with the, with the UK gone, but you're right. The game the game is going to change for us. Uh, but should the strategy sure. change? I wonder, because in the in the context of what you're advocating, um, there have to be tax increases. The tax base needs to be broadened, and there needs to be more revenue raised by the state in order to provide those those services. I presume that's the case. Yeah, the income tax system here is actually fairly progressive. Um, I don't think that's the issue as much as the corporate tax. And it's also the loopholes. It's not just the tax rate. It's the regime. It's the fact that so many loopholes exist. To So the actual rate of tax may not be 12.5%. It actually mm. may be closer to 3 or 4%. We, we've we've done work on that. And the Netherlands, you're right, they're very clever. So it's, But I'm not sure that they're not going to be under pressure as well because the absence of the UK also means that France and Germany have more influence, especially France, and they, they don't like the corporate tax rate, the low corporate tax rates in other EU countries. And Macron will push for that in the upcoming European parliamentary elections for that to change. This has become such a big boogeyman in Irish politics. I, do, I wonder, just ask the question, how much impact would it have if if we had to raise our corporation tax by 5%. I think Shane is right. I don't think it's about the rate. I think it's about the the structures and the way those are operated through uh, that money flows through Ireland. So that if you look at the corporate tax rate, 12.5%, most companies pay something close to that on the income they declare. So the issue isn't the rate. It's the fact that a lot of money is not declared as profits, that it flows through the country in other forms. Uh, and that it's not touched by our tax system, or in many cases by anybody else's tax system either. So it's the it's the it's the allowances and the reliefs and the the, the way things are structured, rather than the actual rate. I, I think the rate the argument over the rate is a bit of a sideshow, really. I also think that it, you know if we can what we're, what we're talking about is the difference between what people pay in tax or companies and what they mm. ought to pay. And if the difference between what they ought to pay and what they pay can be captured in some other way, I think again. This provides another opportunity to us. I think the great thing about Brexit, if there is a, a good, an upside, is that it gives us the opportunity to reframe Ireland's position in the globe. And not in some sort of vainglorious, shouty way, but kind of in a clever way to say, OK, so we depend on these international capital and talent and knowledge. And we know that, let's say, for example, in the last American statistics, American corporations uh, make in terms of profit, about 120 billion euros profit a year here, on which they pay about 7 billion tax. If they were paying 12.5 billion, they should be paying about 18 billion. Sorry, if they were, if they were, if they were paying 12.5%, they should be paying about 18 billion. So the difference between what they do pay and what they, are, what they ought to pay is 8 or 9 billion. And that's an ongoing thing every year. It's so not the, a question also of whether they're actually making those profits in Ireland or whether well, they should be paying that tax in Ireland or somewhere else the, where they're really they, making they it. Are de- they declare uh, that they make this 120-odd billion per year in Ireland in profits. So, And we only tax about 7 billion of that. We only get about 7 billion where we could be getting about 18. So you think, okay, what do we do? Do we wait until Macron dictates what our policy was? Or do we do something like... If you look at all these multinational companies, they pay people, uh, if you work for Facebook or whatever, you get paid your wage and then you get paid stock options. 
So if, for example, the company does well, you get your wage plus this bonus, which is the options. And this is the wealth of the company. And then either you can use that or you can sit in it or you can actually liquidate that and say, I'm taking my money. So take that model, which is pretty much the way most big corporations pay people these days. So wages and options. And take that for a state. So what we could do is we could take the tax that we take as the wage element and the difference between what they actually pay and what they ought to pay, we could take it in shares. And we could create a massive national wealth fund here, which could very, very quickly... So it would be a bit like thinking, the way the Norwegians think about oil, we would think the multinationals are a one-off discovery. Okay? And in this way, so if you were to go to the multinationals, there's no treasure in a multinational company that wouldn't bite your hand off if you said, you know what, you don't have to pay us in cash, you can pay us in options. Okay? And then you put that together, and let's say it's, it's, it's about 10 billion per year. Very soon, this builds up to something amazing. And then rather than use it as a pension fund, because there's no point using it, a pension fund is only rewarding people for getting old. Right? If you think that's what it is, it's, not, it's a ridiculous notion, right? Quite an achievement, getting old. Yeah. No, but, you're, <laughs> but what we really need to do in Ireland is come back to younger people in Ireland can't get collateral to start businesses, right? They, they can't get the cash to actually start up stuff. So could you imagine if we said, okay, well, that wealth fund of which every individual in Ireland will have a certain small amount could become the collateral to start businesses. And then rather than the banks, when I was talking about earlier on, taking land as collateral and obsessing about land and therefore forcing people into this land cul-de-sac, you could actually use this national wealth fund as collateral. But not everybody wants to start businesses, David. But the thing is, not, no, of course not. You don't have to. If you don't want to do it, you don't have to. But if you do want to do it, you actually facilitate it. So therefore, you become a trading country externally and much more importantly, internally. If you don't want to start a business, that's cool. But the upside of starting a business is much more significant if the state comes in and says, A, we want you to do this, and B, we will give you share options in order for you to facilitate this. I think these opportunities are there for us to take. It doesn't take a massive amount of thinking to execute this. And the interesting thing about Ireland is that we're small. And when you're small, you can do big things. Trina, I, what would you think of that idea? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I have to tell this is where my cynicism kicks in. Like a, mm, a huge Irish state asset fund, no, you, which invests in people. The state doesn't even have to do it. The, the nods and the winds So you on. say to Google, you said, think about the practicalities. So let's say, for example, Google is meant to pay I don't know. Just take a figure, right? Google's meant to pay 10 billion euros in tax here, okay? But it pays 6 billion, right? And you say, okay, well, if you go down the Macron route, Google, you're going to have to pay that 4 billion you owe us in tax today. But we're going to give you another opportunity, which is that you treat us like you treat your own managers, right? Is that you give us an option and we will treat you, okay, like a company that deals in wealth and income. Because when you create, the stock is wealth. The company, stocks of a company are wealth. And the difference between wealth and income is wealth you can store, income you spend. And therefore, income is transient, whereas wealth is permanent. So let's think about it in that way. And then say to young people, look, I'm not going to use this pension fund to reward people when they're 70, but I'm going to give you when you're 22 or 23 an opportunity to do something. And, and I see that as the way forward. 
I think we'd need another hour and a half to start teasing out uh, <laughs> David's proposal there. Interesting though, it does kind of relate to something which, and I'm going to give you, maybe you'll have a last thought on, on this subject, uh, Shana, which is the much broader context against which Brexit is happening, some of these political upheavals in Europe are happening, are against a change in the way that the economy works, the way manufacturing works. And particularly, it seems like in the UK, you were based in Sheffield for a while, that in countries which were highly industrialised, we're now in a post-industrial world. And these jobs and not just incomes, but reasons to to live, you know, sense of identity have kind of have melt have melted away to to some extent, and you know, people start talking about, you know, um, answers to this like a universal basic basic income of some sort. But it does seem to me that just providing the kind of social services which I accept are necessary in education and health and childcare and so on, possibly isn't enough. You know, people need a people need a reason to be, uh, and and that's partly where. These questions, why these questions of identity and belonging uh, have have arisen so much in the last few years. Well, I totally agree with that, and I think that David made a really good point that Ireland is a small country. It's not a very uh, densely populated country, so it has the freedom to be bold. And now is a good time to be bold. And I totally agree that you need an, an existential meaning. It's not just about policy. And I saw that. I think there's a tendency in the in the communities that I was in in the UK to blame migrants or at least it became you became freer to blame migrants after the Brexit vote but it's it's about deep unhappiness and prejudice against your social and economic position for so many years not just under the coalition government and the Tories but also under labor that you felt like you weren't respected for being part of the north or being in one of these post-industrial cities eventually Ireland's going to have to get around to to facing climate change and the fact that lifestyles and jobs are going to change anyway, not just because of technology, but also because Ireland's an island and is dependent upon agriculture and tourism and fishing. So part of the kind of, if you want to set up a wealth fund, I think there are problems with that because you're dependent upon the strategic decisions of multinational companies. But I I think there there is, if you want to build that, I wouldn't say it's to help young people start enterprises, but it's part of a vision that we're going to have to change the way we live because of climate change. And because there's going to be a new Europe post-Brexit and Mm -hmm. Ireland's going to have to fit into that somehow in a very kind of unstable world. And within that, and just bring it all back home, finally, Cliff, our colleague Pat Leahy is in Brussels as we speak, uh, waiting for this summit. It's going to happen this evening. I hazarded a guess at some version of what might come to pass there. It does seem more likely than not that it will be a longer extension of nine or 12 months, perhaps with some other elements attached to it. If an extension of that length is agreed, does that mean that that logjam which Pat has spoken about in this studio on the Irish political scene for, for, for many months now, that that comes to an end and that, voila, it's time for our election? I think it could do. I think it very much depends on the terms of the decision. So the real issue for Ireland is a no-deal Brexit, the cliff edge and the kind of short-term chaos that that would create. Um, so whatever about the long-term opportunities of Brexit, which there are, which there are many, there's there is that short-term thing. So if if tonight can somehow take that off the table, really take it off the table, then, then I think it does open up uh, the political environment here. There are obviously conflicting arguments about what should be done. Uh, there are still people, some countries looking for a shorter extension and some countries arguing that pressure needs to be kept on the MPs in, in the House of Commons to actually make a decision. Uh, influential voices like Michel Barnier, uh, Macron, 
Uh, but as you say, does, it, the mood music beforehand does seem to be pointing towards a longer extension. But having been caught out with Brexit predictions before, I'm not going to stick my neck <laughs> right on. out. You. That's perfectly sensible. Listen, thanks for that, Cliff. Thanks also to Shana and to David for coming in today. Thank you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.